Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. never saw myself on the pages of literature and I think that's really damning. It certainly made my life harder. It's made my girlfriend's lives harder. It's made it harder for us to move through the world. And so there's that quote, isn't there? If there is a book that you want to read that's not out there, you'd better write it. I've wanted to meet today's guest since the moment I read one of her stunning poems and started following her on Instagram. She's been described as a half-Egyptian, half-Irish Muslim writer travelling the world, eating cake and dismantling the patriarchy. But even that doesn't quite sum up the unapologetic brilliance of her. Now, with the release of her first book, These Impossible Things, I have the perfect excuse to get her on my podcast. Salma Arwadani, welcome to Mad World. Hello, gorgeous. Hello. <laughs> and now, how are you really? How am I really? I'm, I'm tired and I'm overworked. And when I'm tired and overworked, I don't have much time for myself. And when I don't have alone time, I get a bit frazzled and I can feel the edges beginning to unravel. A little bit because I need to spend time with myself for me to be okay to then interact in the world and do all the things that I need to do. So I haven't had much of that and I can feel like I miss myself a little bit and I need to find some time in the busy schedule to just, you know, when you just want to stay at home for the day and have a little potter around the house. I know that makes me sound like a 90 year old woman, but I just want to potter. We love 90-year-old women. <laughs> yes. I dream of being a 90-year-old woman. <laughs> Eccentric and wild. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm a little afraid around the edges, but hoping that some alone time will put the edges back together. You, but you don't strike me as much of a potterer. Like you, really? well, like I, I feel like you're, you're really, you look really busy to me. Like, <laughs> or maybe that's just the energy you give out, like in a really good way. Whenever I watch your stories or see your posts on Instagram, I'm like, you're one of the few people on Instagram who is just like a holy good thing <laughs> and makes me, I, I feel good when I read your stuff and I read your poems. I wondered, would you read out one of your poems? Yes, of course. Of course I will. This is how I discovered Salma, was I reposted one of her amazing poems. It came up in my feed. Yeah. I was like, I need to follow this woman. That's how I discovered you. And then I was like, <laughs> who is this extraordinary individual? <laughs> and then we fell in love with each other online. A um, modern love story. Yes, yeah. And we lived happily yeah, ever but- after. <laughs> 
Um, yes, I will read out the last one that I posted, which is called The Problem with Softness, Volume 2, because I did a whole volume of The Problem with Softness. And it goes, it goes like this. He tells me that men don't want hard women. I tell him they should stop breaking good women then. Everything that breaks grows back harder, less flexible. There's no give. The bend, the lean, the I'll do anything for you has gone. We might be hard now, but we didn't get here on our own. So I lean down and whisper into his ear, if you want soft women, it's time you learn how to be better men. Oh, I mean, I, everyone listening is like, whoop, whoop. They were like breaking into cheers on the tube with their AirPods in. Yes. Thank yes, you. Salma. Thank you no, but you didn't, you didn't start your career. You didn't start as a writer, did you? Well, it's a, it's a kind of a roundabout story. So I've always wanted to be a writer. That's been the dream my whole life. I always knew I was going to be a writer. And then in 2013, I was working in corporate in London. I was heading up marketing departments, working 14-hour days. And um, I had written the first chapters of what is now in front of you. This is the book. This is the book, These Impossible Things. Those chapters looked very different. It was called something different. The characters had different names. But the the idea was the same. And I sent it to publishers and there was a resounding rejection. I've kept them all in my inbox folder. I'm going to frame them one day. <laughs> when I win the Booker Prize, I'm going to frame them and put them on my wall. Um, and there was this sense that they liked my work, but they wouldn't touch it. And it was at a time where there were lots of problematic things happening around the world. And Muslim was in the headline consistently. And there was this fear that... No one wanted to touch it. The bombings had happened in Paris. There was, there was just this sense from, from publishers and that they didn't want to go anywhere near this. They weren't quite sure what to do with it. And I remember thinking at the time, fine, I work in marketing. I know how this goes. If I hold a community, I hold the keys and you will want me then. So I'm going to build a community and then you're going to come knocking on my door. And so then I started my Instagram and... Eventually, they came knocking on my door. So, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so, these, let's talk about these impossible things. Yes. It's it's really rare to read commercial fiction about women who happen to be Muslims. Yeah, you, I, I've never seen it. <laughs> no, and I and I, you know, it was really interesting because it the issues of like modern feminism meeting religion, mm. and of course, all of those issues are kind of explored, but it isn't a book about it's a book about three women right it's a story about female friendship that's what it is at its heart and it's a love letter to female friendships and how important they are and how they will save your life and no matter what happens with culture with religion with faith with men in your life it is the women in your life who will come in and pick you up off the bathroom floor as my girlfriends have done many times and it's the women in my life that have made me better versions of myself and I always say I'm only the woman I am today because of the women I've had around me. And so that's what I wanted to put on the page. And I wanted it to be that they so they just happen to be Muslim. And that's not the main focal. And that's not why they're in the story, because they're Muslim. Because that was never anywhere on the pages of the books that I read growing up or as a young woman or when I was coming into womanhood. I never saw myself on the pages of literature. And I was a real bookworm. I read nine books a week when I was young. Mm -hmm. And nowhere was I to be found on those pages? And, you know, I loved all the classics, but I think there's, there's only so much you can relate to, 
you know, Jane Austen's Emma or Pride and Prejudice when you're a brown Muslim girl growing up in Newcastle upon Tyne who's working class. You know, there's only so much that you can relate to that. And then I did my, so I did my degree in literature and then I did my master's in literature. And for my master's thesis, I studied the representation of Muslims within literature across the Western Hemisphere. So for a year, I pulled out books from Australia, from America, from the UK, New Zealand. And I looked at the representation of Muslims in, in those bodies of literature. And the result was awful and damning and horrendous. And mm. it was that unfailingly Muslim characters fit into three Groups, one of three groups, either A, the terrorist, the one that we all know so well, B, the Orientalist, so think Aladdin, I live in the desert, I've got 60 camels, or the emancipated character. So the West has freed them from the shackles of an oppressive religion, right. and now here they are and they live a better life for it. And I remember going through it all and thinking, but that's not me and any of my girlfriends, we all loved our religion and our culture and our faith and we didn't want to give it up. And we went out and we got drunk and had sex and did all of those things as well. And everything that we experienced enriched us and mm. we were better for it. But we just, we weren't there. And um, there's been a single story told about Muslim women. And I think that's really damning. It certainly made my life harder. It's made my girlfriend's lives harder. It's made it harder for us to move through the world. And so there's that quote, isn't there? If there is um, a book that you want to read that's not out there, you'd, you'd better write it. So I always knew I was going to be a writer. I thought, well, I better just start with this one. So Malik, Keys and Jenna, yeah. they're all very different. Yes. But they are, as you say, there's drinking, there's sex. You know, Not these sex. Are, so let, love well, it. So, <laughs> let, so let's tell the other stories of Muslim women that we right. don't hear. Right. The ones that are exactly the same as every other woman that you know. They're ambitious, they're hungry, they're desirous, they have big passions and big dreams. And they are working out who they are in this world in mm -hmm. the same way we all are. They just happen to have a faith that they believe in and practice. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't hinder them from doing all the other things in their lives, like falling in love and having sex and achieving big dreams in their careers. It just is one vein of their life. Mm -hmm. And you, you, so you, you have faith. Yeah. I was raised Muslim. My mum's a convert to Islam. She's Irish Catholic, as the other side of the family, which is where the Irish side comes in. And she always said that until you're 18, you, you'll be Muslim. But when you're 18 you want to choose whatever religion that you want to you want to identify with then that's your choice so it was always you know you can be whatever you want and it was always Islam that I identified with that I found in my heart that is still there to this day and that I practice and I think people have quite a hard time reconciling that with me because there I am being really vocal on Instagram talking about sex and masturbation and then posting pictures of me in my underwear and everyone thinks but that that doesn't work. That can't work. And I think that's because we have such a narrow idea of faith in our society. And when mm. someone tells you they're religious, we immediately say, oh, so you can't do this. You can't drink. You can't have it's sex. It's all about what marriage. you can't do. Right. And no one ever turns around to you and says, what's that relationship like for you with your God or with your divine being or the person that you find divinity in? So what is that relationship like for you and your, your God and your divine being? So I think your relationship with God, for me, is a deeply personal thing. And it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship that, like any other relationship, takes work and it ebbs and it flows. And sometimes you can be really pissed off at God, this higher being, whatever you want to call it. I believe in God. I believe there is something up there. Um, probably a woman, let's be honest. 
and <laughs> and I have that personal relationship. And there have been times over the years that I've been really annoyed at it and I've been angry. And there's so many times I find solace in it. And to this day, no matter what my emotional state is about that relationship, when I hear the call to prayer or I hear Quran being read out loud, something moves inside me. I can't tell you what it is, but something shifts. And I know that until that shift stops, I will believe mm-hmm. and I will be a Muslim. If that shift goes away, if I hear the call to prayer one day and nothing moves within me, then maybe it's time to not follow that path anymore. But until that day, that's me, I'm committed. <laughs> Can I ask you, you know, we, we are a podcast that talks about mental health. Yeah. You know, and I really am interested in how faith helps your mental health. Mm. Do you know what? It's really interesting because traditionally, cultures and communities of faith haven't been very good at dealing with mental health. And that that's true for Judaism, for Catholicism, for Christianity. They're not good at talking about it because there's this age-old rhetoric from the priests and the imams that just pray and you'll be fine. Yeah, I can be down on my knees praying. It's not going to make the depression go away. No. That's not how it works. So there's been a real reluctance in those communities to tackle it right. And I think it's been really damaging for a lot of people. I, I've known people who have been in awfully dark places and when they have gone to seek help from their local person of worship they've just said just pray and you'll be fine you don't need medication which infuriates me and makes me so angry I mean I'm a person of faith but I always say the Muslims really ruin my faith for me really? <laughs> they really ruin Islam for me I've been saying that since I was young um, some Muslims ruin it for you some Muslims ruin Islam for me which my mum always goes don't say that Salma that's so bad I'm, like, I'm sorry but they do they do from the, the, the person criticising what you're wearing in the mosque to the person telling you that you can pray away depression and Islam at its very core is a religion of such peace and beauty and it's so feminist forward and it's incredible but it is a religion that has been informed by a patriarchal scholarship as has every religion because nothing exists in isolation and no one is free from the patriarchy because it infiltrates everything and so if you're looking at it from a theological standpoint if you sift through all the patriarchal bullshit around it you know islam is so compassionate to Mm to people with mental health. And there is, you know, I think scholars in the past have quoted that, you know, in Islam, if you kill yourself, then... And I, Catholicism is the same, right? You're, you're into you hell said, for all of eternity, yeah. right? Whereas that's, that's not true. And in, in Islam, it's very much, you know, if someone is in that state and they kill themselves, they are not within their mind and they are compassionately received into, into heaven because, of course, they should be because they were not in a good state of mind. So it's really compassionate and beautiful, but men, as per usual, have ruined everything. So, <laughs> so you don't, so because, I mean, that, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here as a very middle class, very white woman who, I mean, my, my father is Jewish, but my mother is non-practicing anything. So my, you know, the impression that a lot of people, like you talk about that sort of, that it's very, very anti-women. Mm. And those are presumably are the Muslims you're talking about who ruin Islam for yes, you. Yes, yeah. those ones. Those ones. Yes. Because, you know, because you are not sitting here. I mean, you are like, you don't have any hijab See or... me in the street, you wouldn't or straight away go Muslim. But, I so, used to wear it. I wore it for years and years. My mum still wears it. Really? And she wears it. I used to wear it and then I made the decision not to. And what, what was behind your decision not to? I wore it from kind of 
puberty, I guess, until I moved to Egypt. I lived in Egypt for a couple of years after university. And in that time, before I moved to Egypt, I think I was in one of those periods where I was quite annoyed and disgruntled with God and annoyed at my faith or annoyed at the trappings of my religion around it and less in touch with my faith and that one-on-one relationship. And so for me, my headscarf was kind of my last anchor keeping me there. Right. And I wanted to be kept there. And that's why I kept it on. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would often go out of the house and when I went to meet boys and I would take it off. Oh, I'd go on parties or I'd go to the club and I would take it off. And then I would go home and put it back on. And I had lots of those. But I was like, I still want to keep this on. I want to keep this on in some shape or form. And then I moved to Egypt and had like a, had a really beautiful relationship with God there and then fell in love with God again and we had a, we had a good chat. <laughs> and we um, we were in a really good place. And sorted I, your shit out. We sorted our shit out. We went to therapy. <laughs> and and then I thought, well, I don't need it right now. I'm good. And I'm everything is there. And I felt more connected to my faith when I wasn't wearing it than when mm. I had been. Having faith is often, you know, I mean, obviously lots of recovery programs, they use that notion of a higher power, if not a religious God, yeah. about, you know, having faith, not fear. Yeah. And... I do think that there is, you know, we created religion as humans as, as it's sort of to make sense of life, isn't it? We all want something to believe in and we all mm. want to believe that there's something better for us because it helps us when we're enduring the awful times that we're going through and when the grief is there or when the sadness comes or when things don't go our way. I, find, I personally find great comfort in saying, you know what, this is meant to be and something better is around the corner. Yeah. And in our religion we say, you know, God will never send you anything that you can't bear. Yeah, maybe there's nothing up there, right? But that gives me a huge sense of comfort that when I am in the pits of my most awful days, I think someone knows that I can bear this. So that must mean that I can bear it. Because when you don't believe in yourself, that idea that someone else thinks you can is hugely powerful. It is. It is. And also, I think that even if you can't get on board with the idea of a religious God... I think it, you know, there are very few people on this planet who would disagree with the notion that there is something bigger out there. The fact that we exist and that the planet is and that life came to, you know, evolve on this planet and that we can breathe oxygen (laughs) and we're in the Goldilocks zone or whatever. Like if there's there's a scientist listening who she doesn't know a bloody (laughs) shit about what she's talking about. But, you know, we and we are all made of the same stars, you know, And, and I think that there's that in itself is a sort of spiritual. And there are people that will believe that, but who will be very closed down about religion. Oh, no, religion yeah. is responsible for all of the ills in the world. And, you know, actually, it's far more nuanced than that, like right. most things are. Like most things those are. <laughs> and I remember, and I've had conversations with atheists, and I've got a really good friend who's this staunch atheist. And, you know, when we were in uni, and I would say, oh, I went to pray or something. And he went, oh, you were talking to yourself. That's what you went to do. You, were, you went to talk to yourself because praying doesn't exist because God isn't a thing. And we always used to have these big theological debates, which was a waste of both of our time because neither of us were budging, but we enjoyed it all the same. And I always think, fine, let's say you are right and there is no God and there is no afterlife. I'm fine with it. If I'm going to just be dust and ash at the end... It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I still would rather have gone through life believing in something and, mm. and garnering comfort from something. Mm. I still, I would still go through life again this way if I knew. So to me, this book is as much about 
You know, I was reading it. It's about it's about the need to pigeonhole women mm. and how we, as women, you know, were put in boxes. Right. And, you know, if you're this kind of person, you must be that and you can't be that as well. And <laughs> it's it's that the multitudes contained within us. And that, I think, is doesn't matter what you believe in or what you don't believe in. That is a fundamentally female thing that resonates hard. 100%. It's about the experiences of women and what it is to be a woman in this world and how all of those things will often collide and come at you. And how do you navigate that, right? We do it with friendships. We do it with faith. We do it with a, a numerous amount of tools that we have in our toolbox. But it is fundamentally, the book at its very core is about women it's about female relationships it's about the things that we go through that are painful and difficult I mean I'm obsessed with women's lives I'm obsessed with the stories of women I just they're fascinating and brilliant which I just don't find that further for men's stories (laughs) I'm just less impressed by them there's a great line about Malik I think talking about her about her experiences of Islam but I think also this is this again is something that will resonate to lots of people for many different reasons, which is she has had enough of yearning for something that is supposed to be yours, but never quite feels like something you belong to, which I sort of, I, I got out my highlighter pen. <laughs> I in bed with my glasses on and my cup of cocoa. And I was like, oh, you know. Sounds like a delightful evening. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Was, I'm like, Listen, being in bed with you, Salma, was heaven. <laughs> um, but to me, that, you know, that again, these are, these are just human life experiences. Right. Like that to me is, for me personally, as a white middle class woman, is the experience of of mental illness, right. of of just insecurity and self-esteem and all of that stuff. But it can mean lots of things to different people. And it can mean anything to anyone. And I think when Malik's talking about that, it's, she, you know, she's talking about wanting to belong to this culture, but never really quite in it, but almost in it. And I think we've all felt that when we've, you know, moved to new places and you're looking to find your community or you've moved to new jobs or you're going through a difficult period in time. And I remember when I was... Um, a couple of years ago and I had a one summer of real sadness and apathy, which when I look back on it was depression, but I didn't name it that at the time. And I remember feeling almost removed from the world, almost disconnected from it. And I was going through it and I was going through the motions, whether that was work or friendships, but I was never quite there. And I remember wanting to be there and I remember wanting to belong and I remember wanting to be plugged back in, in a way, how I used to feel, but never quite being able to, no matter how much I wanted it, because it just wasn't the time. And I had to be a period of time in that space before I could. And it it lasted months and months. And I think that you're completely right. It's, It's true of so many different instances, especially when your mental health is in a bad place or you're suffering, you do feel like you've you've suddenly been removed. Mm. You don't quite know how to get back. Mm. At least I did anyway. It's like a sort of the tracing paper yeah. existence. You're on the tracing paper and underneath is the real world. Right. That's the kind and of you feeling. always trying to but you can never rip through it. You yeah, can never yeah, yeah. peel it off. Yeah. And you just I don't know, like being with your head underwater. 
This book, honestly, it's really moving. Yeah. It's a really brilliant book. And I'm Thank really, you. and you know, you've been chosen like what, the Today Show in yeah. America. Yeah. I thought you was like the book of the month. Yeah, <laughs> which is wild and beautiful and amazing. And then um, Jenna Bush Hager is, you know, she runs that book club. She's a presenter on the Today Show. And she is obviously, I'm sure you know, George W. Bush's daughter. Yeah. Which I just found some great irony and beauty that she had picked this book about that, Muslims. Can we just, I mean, that is, <laughs> because I, it must have been, I mean, let's talk about this because I don't, you know, like you are much more than your, than your faith, right? But, or maybe you'd argue that actually we're nothing without faith. I don't know. But how difficult was it to, I mean, how, like, sort of post 9-11, that, that was a bloody awful time. Yeah to be a Muslim. I mean, I think if we were to look back at some of the front pages, the tone of the news coverage, we now, in 2022, would go, bloody hell. Mm. That was... And obviously George W. Bush was at the forefront of that. 9-11 changed my life completely. And it changed the lives of every Muslim that I know. And I always talk about this and I say, life was discernibly different post 9-11. And I grew up in Newcastle. My family are still in Newcastle. I'm a northern lass. And there, <laughs> there's not that many brown people around as there are in mm-hmm. London. And so even before 9-11, and my, my dad's Pakistani, Pakistani immigrant, came here when he was like 12 to the UK. So you would still get called things in the street before 9-11. And you would get funny stares. And of course, you get treated differently. People tell you to go back to where you come from. Mm-hmm. But there was just, you felt this tectonic shift as soon as 9-11 happened. And suddenly it just escalated 400%. It just went through the roof. And I remember people throwing eggs at us in the street. Like, oh, and at the time, my, you know, my mum is, like I said, she wears a hijab, so she's visibly Muslim. And then I started wearing one at about 15, so not long afterwards. I was very visibly Muslim as well. Um and people would always like throw eggs at our head, like maybe to hit our head scarves, because I don't know, that felt like something that made them feel better. I don't know. I don't understand the logic of it. But the abuse, the abuse did go up. And that's probably the, the least of it, I would say. I think getting some ignorant person in the street throwing an egg at your head or asking you why you've got a tea towel on your head or telling you to go back to where you come from, you kind of, you can rationalise it in a way because you go, you're really ignorant you're believing ridiculous things. You see me as a threat. I understand why you've arrived at this ridiculous, you know, conclusion. But it is the more nuanced changes that came with life that that made it more difficult. So it is trying to, like, trying to navigate university and people asking you questions. I have been asked my whole life whether I know Osama bin Laden. You're joking me. Swear to God, like a genuine question. Do you know him? It's a bit like yes, someone, he comes for dinner. <laughs> it's a bit like going Sunday. to. I mean, it's like going to America and someone saying, "Do you know the Queen?" Yeah, I know, but that was I'm genuine. Not, I'm, not, I'm not equating the Queen with Osama bin Laden. <laughs> just, just before Let's any clarify before that. any royalists <laughs> immediately, like, uh, not the same people. Yeah. Um, do not hold the same belief systems. But they, it, people would genuinely ask because all they are being fed in the media is this frenzy. There was an Islamophobic frenzy yeah. that the media orchestrated. And they still do to this day. And when you have every headline calling for your demise and there is no nuance applied to it, 
it is difficult to navigate the world and it comes with very tricky conversations. And then we sit here and go, that's ridiculous that someone would ask you if you know Osama bin Laden. But when Muslim and Osama bin Laden are the only thing that go hand in hand with every single headline, Mm. what are people going to ask you, right? And that made it difficult. And I remember when I was in the working world in London and I was working in corporate, you know, and every time you hear that there's been a bomb, Every Muslim in the UK clenches and holds their breath and goes, please don't let it be a Muslim, please don't let it be a Muslim, because we have had enough. We've had so many. We don't need more media headlines, are we? And I remember coming into work the day after the Paris bombings and everyone was standing in the kitchen. There was a group of my colleagues standing in the kitchen talking about it. And everyone was shocked and horrified and naturally, because it was an awful thing. And... Everyone went around the circle and and just said, yeah, it's awful. And they got to me and then everyone looked at me and they said, what do you think, Salma? And no one else was asked what they think. It was assumed that everyone would think this was awful. But they all stopped and looked at me as if I would have an alternative opinion that this wasn't anything but horrendous or that I would somehow try and make some theological argument about why this was done. And things like that are baffling. But it does, it makes moving through life harder. Well, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when, for example, a man goes into a school in America with a gun and shoots dead multiple children, mm. we don't we don't see that as terrorism. We don't damn all the men. No. no. You know, or when you have incels, you know, and Laura Bates has written brilliant books about yeah, this. Yeah, she but, has. But, um, and the majority of mass shooters are men. Yeah. Are cisgendered men. But we don't question, you know, it's it's a really bizarre thing that I think we need to, uh, that, as you say, you still, you still experience to this day. Yeah, you? you do. And you know what? The Islamophobia that was orchestrated by the media was phonetic then. Mm-hmm. But it still continues because when you are writing headlines about Muslims, regardless of what they have done, they are given less grace than anyone else who have done equal crimes or equal, equally bad things, right? When we, If you think back to how we talk about Shamima Begum and when that mm-hmm. whole story came out, there is no grace afforded because you're Muslim, so you're already starting below par, you know? And I remember being... I, I've done loads of travelling in the States and I remember being in New York and my friend saying, what do you want to see when you're here? Do you want to go to... 9-11 it's like this incredible site that is a memorial now and you go and it's r- meant to be really moving and I and I I couldn't think of anything worse for me than going there and I said to her I was like no thank you I I don't want to go there because it was this awful tragedy that took away so many lives and it was horrendous and it also was the beginning of this massive frenzy of Islamophobia that changed my life and my family's life and all my friends' lives. And so it's really hard to to stare at it and not feel that pain of that. And it's just a really complicated thing. Mm. And, you know, you can look at a memorial of World War II and you can appreciate it and you can be sad, And but there is less connection if I stand at a memorial of World War II, you know. And I found that I just couldn't go there. I couldn't go and visit a place that had taken so many lives and changed so many lives as well. Mm-hmm. So is that, you know, so you came of age during that and presumably yeah. that's a lot of the fire in your belly for what you do today. <laughs> I'm eternally pissed off, Bryony. I am. I have been pissed off all my life, I think. I think it comes from having a pissed off mother. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think people always say that to me, like, where do you, you know, where does your feminism come from? Um, being a woman, it comes from being a woman. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you tried it? It's a pretty shit existence at times, yeah. you know. I know, but I do meet women who manage to go through it with more grace than I do. I don't. I, I don't. I have. I have one, so little grace about it. I just like who gives a shit about grace? <laughs> do you know what I mean? She's a girl with mud on her face. <laughs> Is that poem or something like that? Why do you need to when you're angry? Why do you need to be graceful about it? And I and I also think that actually the way you do it is so unapologetically you. <laughs> I it wouldn't work any other way. And and I but I don't I don't look at you and go because she's she, do you know what she lacks? Grace. She's not very gracious <laughs> about this. She's not very gracious about these patriarchal injustices <laughs> that lead constantly to the death of people, men and women. Yeah. She's just not gracious about it. That is very true. Fuck it. I will continue be. I know, but I do think, does it, you know, older women tell me, you will get less angry as time goes by. But I find myself just getting more angry mm. as time goes by. And I think, well, now I'm just more annoyed that we've been on this for so long and we're still on this. Like, why haven't we been able to move on? Um, so you're just eternally annoyed. I was thinking about you the other day. You did a brilliant set of posts about um, how you just you want to earn lots of money and live a nice life. Yeah. And that's really cool. And I was reading about the coverage of this new biography about Meghan Markle. And one of the many criticisms was that she wanted to fly first class. But I was reading it and I thought, and what is wrong with a woman wanting to fly first class and stay in luxury accommodation? Right, because when a man does that, we call him a baller. Yeah. And when a woman does it, we say, know your place. You should not aspire to more. Yeah. And I, oh, and I deeply believe that one of the most radical acts of feminism is financial independence. Mm -hmm. Get your money. Don't share it with anyone. Make sure you always have. And when I say financial independence, for, for lots of people that isn't, you know, huge mega wealth. I'm not saying that. Make sure you always have a little pot that is yours and you have access to that pot and no one else does and look after that and secure that. And I, and I think, you know, fuck this idea of us being thankful for the crumbs that we get. I do want to fly first class. Have you been in economy? It's mm. awful and it's only getting worse. They're making the plane smaller. The seats are getting smaller. I've got a baby on my lap that's not mine. Listen. Men are constantly, businessmen constantly are like, if I have to fly over five hours, you have to put me in business. And people go, oh, of course, gentlemen, of right. course. Then you get called arrogant. Like, oh, she's a bit up herself. She wants first class. And I just want more wealth for women. I mm. always try to live my life in this economy of sisterhood. So when I am paying for services, when I am buying things, I try to get them from female founded companies. My business model, I changed like my accountant, who was great and was lovely. And there's nothing wrong with the accountancy firm that I used. I changed it to find a female-founded accountancy firm who employs mostly women because I want to put money in their pockets, you know? I changed my email marketing system for my business to a female-founded company. I'm currently investigating changing my bank to a female-founded bank. But I just want to give more money to more women because when you look at it, the reason we haven't had power and the reason we can't access places a lot of the time is because we don't have enough money and we haven't controlled the money for so long. And it's not arrogant or consumerist or capitalist to want more money. I want more money so that I will always have a roof over my head. Mm. Because if I as a woman in this structure, which by the way isn't changing anytime soon, mm -hmm. it may not change in my lifetime. I want to know that 
if I don't have a roof on my head, over my head, I am not at the mercy of men's whims because they are whimsical creatures. So I don't ever want to be in that situation. I want to always be able to provide for myself. And so I just want, to, I just want all the money for all the women. That's you the want aim. all the good things for all the women. I want all the good things. And why, why shouldn't we have all the good yeah. things? Why shouldn't we have soft living and, you know, a thousand thread cotton sheets and luxury towels? And Is there a thousand all, threads? I, there should be. I don't know. There's got to be. Call Probably. Probably. Someone get Harrods on the phone, surely. Um, I just want all of those gorgeous, luxury, indulgent things for women because... Being a woman, and I always say this, is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I find it impossible at times. And all the things that I have gone through as a woman and the abuse that I have endured just by proxy of my gender and being at the mercy of male hands is so jarring. It sometimes makes my teeth want to shatter. If I ever allow myself to stop and think back at some of the things that I've gone through, whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's the abusive relationship that I was in, it it just, it makes me shudder to my core. And I think that's been so hard and that's been so difficult. And if I sit around a table with women and if I say, I had this experience one night when I was walking home and I was raped. I am not going to be the only one there with that story. Three, four of the women around me might say, me too. Mm. Or they might say, my girlfriend was as well, or my best friend was, or my sister-in-law. Or There are always stories. And when you think about the numbers, it's jarring. And we've gone through all of these hard things and it's not changing and it's still unsafe and it's still dangerous and it's still terrifying. And all of the soft things in life doesn't make that go away and it doesn't make up for it. But we are so deserving of all the luxurious and all of the soft, beautiful things. And why shouldn't we fucking have them? Mm. Mm. Did that that happen to you? Yeah, when I was in Greece, um, I was working there. Uh, it was like one summer in university. I just was walking home from work and a man grabbed me. I'm so sorry. I want to come and give you a hug. <laughs> You'll make me cry. I'm overworked and tired. That's why I'm emotional. <laughs> no, but also, don't listen. This other thing of women having to apologise. I think I've got tissues. Thank you, darling. This thing of having to apologise for our emotions. It's some, another thing women have had to do historically. No. I'm really happy to cry everywhere and anywhere. <laughs> I will cry on anyone. <laughs> Let it out. Because um, it is hard. It's difficult. I think womanhood is impossible at times. Beautiful and great and incredible. And I thank God every day I'm not a man because that would be an awful existence. <laughs> but... It is hard, it is. It's an uphill, uphill climb. Salma, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. These Impossible Things is out now. You are you are all the good things. <laughs> you are all the luxury, fantastic, beautiful, glorious things. And I'm so I'm so happy I got I finally got to meet you, mm. like in the flesh and give you a big hug. And I'm so happy that you have written this book, that you have managed to do this in less than 10 years. 
I'm so happy that I got to meet you because I am always so inordinately grateful for women who are living as loudly as you do and as unapologetically and saying all the things that we're not supposed to say, which is what I've done all my life. And I find it quite a lonely experience. And Mm. it's lovely when women say, I was thinking that too, but I always wish there was more of them saying it and Mm. saying it out loud, which is why I was so glad to find you. And you must have been sent somehow. And I am always so hopeful then when I meet women like you. And I think, okay, we're going to be all right. We are going to live happily ever after. (laughs) We are indeed. The sunset is waiting for us and we will (gasps) skip to it with our 1,000 cotton thread dreams. (laughs) Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners, and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form, so if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld, and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 That's 0300 123 They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting SHOUT to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm.